0: The project, the
1: project. Kuwait. Kuwait Learn. Learn, Learn live, 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 live. Hey, everybody! Welcome back to this episode of Psyched with Doctor D.
0: Oh, wow, we had an amazing presenter, Khalid Hadid. Uh, wrote an article on gender uh, binary, and he says the case against binary gender. It was just amazing. You no, know, his stories were amazing. His honesty, the way he described gender roles in a way, in a different way. I was really amazed at his articulation, mm-hmm. intelligence.
1: This episode will definitely, definitely. make you think. Yes, and complete. Just begin to deconstruct the way that we think of oh, gender.
0: That's right. Great. Definitely.
1: So, in- so listen up. Don't let
0: this uh, pass you. Um, listen. Send us your comments, your rating. We are open to all. Enjoy all
2: this and more in today's episode.
1: And yeah. we're on.
2: Okay. So, uh, welcome.
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Should I start by saying my name? Yes, yes, please. Okay, my name is Khalid Hadid. I teach English and comparative literature at uh, Kuwait University. And I've been doing that since 2013. My experience there definitely shaped the way I've come to perceive problems of gender and sexuality in, in Kuwait. I would say a fair portion of the courses I've taught also dealt with. Issues of gender and sexuality, all literature really that is, you know, serious, you know, probes social problems in profound ways. And so it's pretty hard to avoid issues related to gender or sexuality or class or race. But specifically for the article that uh, I'm here to discuss today, I mean yeah. the background is that I was cracking approached Cracking the mold. Yeah, cracking the mold, I like the that case time. against binary gender. How
0: would you even come up with a title like I mean, that? Uh,
2: the title, well, basically uh, basically I was approached by a former student of mine who's now uh, a managing editor at this journal where the article was published and she asked me to uh submit an article of my choice on a topic of my choice. And I thought that would be A kind of a productive paradigm within which to write because it would allow me to approach, you know, the problem of gender identity, but also maybe in a less direct way, the problem of sexual normativity also in Kuwait. And also to tackle the problem of segregation. Well, double standards in in gender, right? And uh, but on top of that, um, segregation public uh, in in uh, public education, which has been a thorn in my side, you know, it has kind of really, I would say, dimmed or darkened my experience of teaching at the university. The problem of um, this intensive differentiation between the genders, you know, which just covers a whole spectrum of behaviors, and types of speech, and you know, types of clothing, and different types of access to space. I mean, this is a, a problem that's visible to me on a daily basis everywhere I go, you know. And mm. well, my purpose was, you know, to try to get people to understand that the dominant way that gender works in this society is, is not necessarily natural, and that gender is largely a social construct, right? It's something that you you have to be sort of, I don't wanna say indoctrinated, but something close, kind of like you have to be programmed from an early age in order to believe that a particular distribution of, let's say, gender identities, right? Um, is something natural, essential, and non-negotiable in the way that a a biological reality would be. I don't think Kuwait is unique in kind of having a social structure based on very rigid, rigid kind of gender models, let's say. But unlike other countries, and I I often use the countries of Western Europe and the U.S. as kind of uh, counterpoints, Unlike those countries, there still isn't enough of a a space of discourse where we can imagine and talk about alternative models of gender, Because I
1: think we're still stuck in seeing gender as biological sex. And we haven't moved past seeing it through maybe sexual difference. Like when you look at Butler and Siksou and all these other theorists that came out, they're not looking at it in this deterministic Way. Yes, yes. And I think this is a good segue in terms of talking about binaries because you start your article by talking about binary models and how they seem to be the the foundation of patriarchal society. Mm. So can you elaborate on that a little bit?
2: Well, I think for any patriarchal society, a binary approach to gender is necessary because Like other binary approaches, let's say, for example, if we look at race like, you know, black, white, or if we look at, you know, the religious distinctions that were operative, you know, during the times of the Christian empires where it was like either Christian or heathen, for example, right? Having a binary schema by default, it's kind of part of a logic where one member of this binary pair is going to be the superior one and the other member is going to be the inferior one the superior member of the binary will have, by default, the right to subjugate the inferior part of them the binary. So it's, you know, according to that logic that, you know, a everything binary... Everything has to be bi- black and white. Everything
0: ab- has to be high or low.
2: Higher, or yeah. low. I know. Uh, or, yeah. So everything
0: say, is, uh, to, is, in a way, it is put into some sort mm-hmm. of a scale, you know, either this or that. So I guess binary makes sense when it comes to... If people don't understand gender, it's easy to say male qualities, female qualities.
2: Right. But a bit more than that, it's like, you know, if there's a particular logic of power that is working to shape society in in very particular ways, reducing reality really helps.
1: Mm -hmm. And that's where Foucault comes in. Yeah. And so you set up this idea of duality Mm -hmm. in terms of saying that. This structure is built on on keeping these separate spheres as far away f- as possible. Mm. There can't be any leaks or fissures within like mm. male, man, woman, mind, body, black, white. It has to be separate. Yes. And so you bring up Foucault and power and knowledge mm. to start to show the cracks. Can yes. you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yes. So. Michel Foucault was a French philosopher who's uh, been identified as a post-structuralist. And uh, for the post-structuralists, it was was very important for them to, um, you know, bring awareness to language, not as this transparent and honest kind of medium of representation and communication, but rather as a kind of a system, a system of signs that ultimately works to produce the reality of the society within which it is used. And they went further (laughs) to argue that um, language is set up in a way that kind of pushes it to construct reality in a way that fits the the current distribution of power. And that's where he talks
1: about this discursive construction. Yes. In terms of it's not, Biological. It's not you were born in this way. No, it's all of these discursive constructions that make you who you are. And more importantly, it's not coerced. It's not forced upon you. Right. It's almost to a point where you start to do the self surveillance. Yeah. To fit into.
2: Absolutely. Yes.
1: Into this mold. Yes. And that's really important because once you start to see gender not as it is, Mm. but as it's constructed, Mm. you can start to break everything apart. And it reminds me of an article by Iris Marion Young called Throw Like a Girl, where there was another psychologist, he was looking at the softball game, and he said, girls are weaker than men because look at how they throw. They Mm. can't throw the ball Mm. far enough. Mm -hmm. So she takes a step back and says, no, but look at how the boy is throwing. He's using his entire body twisting arm shoulder everything to throw the ball whereas the girl it's limited to just her shoulder and that's indicative of the amount of space that men and women are allowed to have so whereas men are able to move freely in the world Mm. women are constricted into the smallest limited space possible so it's not a question of weakness it was more or less the spatial limit that both were given.
2: Yeah, I think it's a very powerful observation. And I think that this idea that women are like biologically weaker than men is being accepted as a kind of a truism, you know, as an evident reality, because there's less cultural room for women to kind of, to develop their physical strengths compared to what's available to men. It's just considered more natural and permissible for men to um go to the gym a lot you know and just work on the development of their physical strength and work in occupy, uh, occupations that require physical strength whereas if it, if we think of women having the same chance you know you know the general turn of opinion will be oh that's so unfeminine it's so yeah, unappealing so why, why would women want right. to do that to their bodies you know it's just more in line with, you know, uh, feminine beauty for women to have right. soft and kind of supple and pliant bodies, you know.
0: And then um, also the way, you know, when you describe a man, you say, oh, he has muscles, he's strong. Yeah. And for a woman, it's uh, it's very interesting because I was just, uh, one of my classes in social psychology we were talking about gender. And I asked the class, I asked the guys, how many of you would marry a weightlifter or a powerlifter, women, right? And none of them put their hand up. And then when I said, why would you not marry someone that, you know, is strong and, um, and works out and lifts? One guy said to me, no, I don't want my woman to be stronger than me.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. I was
0: like, okay. Yeah. But she could be stronger in other ways. It's not just like, you know, her body yeah. is stronger. <laughs> therefore. And then another one said, no, but that's not, it's like, Dr. D, that's not strong. That's not attractive. And why it's not that attractive? Because she's not feminine. Because most of the time, when when you know when, when you describe a woman, you do. You have the more petite she is, mm. the feminine she is, the cute she is. Because you're mm.
1: infantilizing her. Yeah. Once you infantilize the yeah. female body, you reduce it, and yeah. therefore can. That's right exert power over it. Yes. So the less space a woman takes up, mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. the the more that this patriarchal society can say. Continues. Yeah, but that's it. It's just <laughs> okay. this constant perpetuation that keeps How, this binary That's right. stable. Because there is uh,
0: advantages to keeping it that way, right? Yes. So the more we continue feeding into this patriarchal society, mm-hmm. the more, you know, the patriarchs yeah, are mean, happy. And, and this whole,
2: you know, this whole like gendering of physical exercise and physical strength that resonates on a personal level with me. Because since my childhood, I was never attracted to sports, you know, that I was un- under pressure to be attracted to sports, you know, and to develop my body, in a, you know, as a strong body, you know. But I felt always that I existed more in my mind than in my body. It wasn't a, it was never a priority for me, you know. So me you know, on a person level, that's something that I kind of, i say I would struggle with and I feel like it's kind of, it's just, um, it's unfair to have that sort of expectation you know, leveled on men, you know, men who don't identify with this kind of, that's uh, right. with this kind of role, mm-hmm. you know.
0: But and then it, there is a pressure because then if, I'm sure as a kid that it, you know, even with my son, like he doesn't, I mean, he only likes skating, but he doesn't really do anything sporty and... You know, and his sister's more sporty, so it's like always this kind of pressure. It's like, why don't you like soccer? Why don't you like basketball? Because he's really tall for his age. Every time somebody sees him this tall, they automatically assume you must be playing basketball. And it's like, no, I don't even like basketball. Yeah, you must be. You know, in, why are you not in football? Why are you not like, you know? And yeah. in a, in a way, not asking him like, do you like it or not, but. In a surprise way that you're not doing any of that, yeah. while his sister's more active in that way. And he's, you know, they're like, really, you? Not him? Like, they make these kind of constant comment that mm. there's something wrong with your gender.
2: because,
0: mm. And then something wrong with your gender also, in a yes. way. Yes,
2: yes, yes. Yeah. It's... And, you know, this... It brings me back to the article and the reason why I felt like introducing the theories of uh, Judith Butler about gender performativity would complement the theories of Michel Foucault very nicely. Whereas Michel Foucault, you know, investigates the ways in which language, including, you know, uh, binaries, construct reality, right? As we perceive it, uh, Judith Butler... This looks at the kind of the micropolitics of the body and argues that the way we perform our bodies, the types of body language that we assume, uh, the types of clothing we wear, right, all of that goes into defining, you know, the normalcy of our bodies. You know, what, what is the normal feminine? What is the normal masculine over time, right? And so like, you know, these expectations surrounding physical strength, physical activity, they come attached with a whole range of other expectations, you know? What is natural for a woman to wear? What is natural for a man to wear, right? So um, I lived in the States for 13 years before coming back to Kuwait, and it changed. So I left Kuwait in 2000, and then when I came back, I was just shocked. I was completely shocked at the degree of change, you know? The degree to which the society had taken a conservative turn. And so I felt like, at least on, on a visible level, right, that uh, the codes defining what's visibly masculine, what's visibly feminine, had really become very restrictive, very limiting. And in the States, you know, I, like, I'd just go out or whatever, I'd wear a pendant or I'd wear a bracelet or a ring and it just wouldn't occur to anyone to just like even turn their eyes to me. It wouldn't, I wouldn't be a magnet for attention, you know. But as soon as I came here, you know, I noticed that that wasn't the case, you know, you just, you're expected to, if you're biologically male, you're expected to dress a particular way and the same goes for biologically female. Deconstructing binary gender for me is is both liberating our minds and liberating our bodies and um, kind of giving us room to perceive ourselves in relation to others in a really, in a way that is actually reflects reality, you know, much better than the system we currently operate by, yeah. And
1: I think that's important. It's Once you start to understand that this isn't written in stone, Mm. that you can perform it differently, Mm. there's this freedom that comes from that. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm not normal, why am I feeling this way? Why do I want to do this? Why do I not want to play sports? Why do I just then you can start the self-acceptance as well. Yes. right, And really move forward. Very true. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think that's the important, that we can normalize a lot of things instead of having to say that, oh, you don't like sports, so there must be something wrong with you. Or, you know, you're too masculine for a girl, then there's something wrong with you. Yeah, yeah. And I think that this is really, um, you know, if you think about it, small children. This really affects their identity, and that affects their their perception of who they are. Mm-hmm. And, and this idea of questioning: Am I really normal? You know, is it true, Mom, that I girls are only supposed to do this? Mm-hmm. Or and I feel like you know, when you say to them, "No, I don't," you know, it doesn't matter. You should be who you want to be. Even you, as as a parent, you get mocked because then other. People that hear that are saying, Mm. what is wrong with you as a mom? You're not supposed to say that to them. You are ruining them. You're allowing them to, you know, um, to become um, different. Mm. You know, you're opening up the door for them to be gay. You're opening the door for, and, and this constant connotation of, the, the pressure that a parent feels, mm. nevertheless, the pressure the kids are feeling. Yeah.
1: It's like the nail polish incident. It's a nail
0: polish incident. <laughs> right? Yeah, you got to tell. I don't know if we've talked talk about about the yeah. nail polish incident.
1: So my son comes up to me one day and says, I want to put red nail polish on my feet. Cool. Great. Red's one of your favorite colors. Let's do it. Then he says, okay, mom, I want to paint my fingernails. And I'm... Okay with that. Like I give him the space, safe space at home, but I also had to prepare him Mm. for what might happen when he steps out of Mm. his safe space.
0: Mm.
1: And like my son will walk around saying, no gender discrimination in a joking way. But I had to sit him down and say, listen, you can wear nail polish. It's your body. As long as it's not harming anybody else, you can do what we want, what you want. Mm. But there might be kids that come up to you and laugh at you. Yes. There might be kids that come up and say, nail polish is just for girls. Yes. And I gave him the list of what might happen. And I said, your response is it is my body and I can do what I want. So I gave him the choice. I said, if you are willing mm. to follow through mm. with any of these things, mm. I'll paint them. If not, I won't. He eventually followed through and wanted to do it. Mm. Um, But I don't like that I had to give him Mm. this. I had to preface a simple thing as painting his nails.
2: Yeah, I understand. But, you know, from the perspective of a protective parent, I think it's sensible to do that in a social setting like what we have in Kuwait. Because if you're someone who is outside of the norm you can easily fall victim to predatory kind of behaviors. And, you know, one thing that I think I bring out in my article is that in order for any system, right, to remain in place, in this case, the system of gender, uh, there has to be an active process of, like, policing, right? Policing the boundaries. And policing the boundaries happens how? It happens when, whenever you notice someone kind of acting in ways that really don't fit within the boundaries laid down for them, you police that person and you police them by, you know, abusing them verbally or physically, marking them out as an outsider, coming up with, you know, marginalizing expressions for them, kind of representing them as the the odd exception, you know, bullying, etc. So policing measures, I feel like are very active, in our society. And there's a spectrum between, you know, subtlety to like, you know, direct kind of oppression, you know. And subtlety can be like, you know, looking askance at someone and just like, you know, giving or looking them up and down, you know, to show them that you don't approve of what you're wearing, you know, of their of what they're wearing. So it's uh
0: Do you think this you know, policing happens because there's fear? Yeah of the unknown or fear of... Yeah,
2: yeah, I mean, so so it's interesting. So I feel like, okay, I feel like any social system that is really built on rigid binaries, like where there's continuity is not allowed, that kind of system is actually in practice. I would say it's impossible to actually implement in any thorough and honest way. Like it's impossible even for, let's say, a man who identifies as biologically and psychologically male to fit in with you know the privileged part of this binary 100% because there's a kind of idealistic kind of exaggeration on both sides of the binary you know what it means to be masculine like it is expressed in an ideal kind of archetypal way and the same goes for what it means to be feminine right And no one can really live these, embody these ideals. They remain as ideals, you know. The most we can do is approximate those ideals. So whenever someone who identifies himself, let's say we're talking about men now, if I'm a man and I identify myself with the privileged side of this binary, as a typical male, let's say an alpha male, right? That identity would by default be in excess of what is, you know, uh, I don't want to say natural in the sense of biological, but, you know, what is um, uh, reasonable of us to expect? Okay, let's say. So when you see another male body behaving outside of this narrow box to which you've accustomed yourself, on you know, on the basis of which you've built your entire identity, your reaction will be fear, right? So I think... A lot of you know abusive behavior, a lot of bullying comes out of the fear that the dominant majority experiences you know to keep the socials in you know, a rigid social system to keep it within the rigid shape that it currently has as much as you can you need to keep on um excluding difference and making difference. A more intimidating kind of experience, a more more fearful experience. Yes, and that's why there is
0: policing, as you were saying, because if we see difference, Mm. you know, then we're intimidated by it. Yes. And in order, and we become intimidated, and that's what encourages people to be policing. Yes. So, I mean, if you think about bullying... It's all about targeting the ones that are different. Yes. Targeting the weak, or targeting the boy that you know is not fitting into the masculine. Uh, yeah. Uh, characteristics, or the girl that's not right. feminine enough, or the uh, the kid that has disability of some sort, physical or mental. Right. Or the the ones that are seen as uh, yeah. passive. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Because everything on the outside, the marginalized, the abject, all of it just threatens the stable system.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Like and that's the, exactly
0: the point, threatening.
1: Mm-hmm. That's yeah. it. It shows that it's not black and white, that it is the spectrum and that people can flow in and out of this. Mm. And so that's where all of this violent behavior comes from. Mm -hmm. And it's either in the form of the dominant inflicting this or even it could be from the self. Like you've seen people that don't fit do like policing themselves. Right, to make
0: sure that they fit within the norm.
1: You know, but I mean, mean, let's just
0: be realistic. The idea is, is that, you know, we can't just blame people the way they feel or act because this is the way that they were brought up. Mm. And, you know, if you all your life you've been brought up with certain criterias, binary, as you can say, and to be able to recognize that this is what is norm, Mm -hmm. to later on come back and start accepting that, yes, you've learned it all the way like this, but now we're telling you something else. Yeah. I think it's difficult.
2: It is. Yeah. It takes a lot of Effort to A lot of decondition, education. decondition someone. Yes, you know.
0: And I'm not English. sure. Like we said, is to decondition someone is like they have to have the ability, the education, the acceptance. And I'm not sure if the majority of the population has that.
1: So. Maddie always talks about me on the show. It's my chance to actually talk about him. <laughs> um, so, Maddie, Mehdi's in a very privileged position.
0: Yeah, he's heterosexual, He's white, white in male. the States. He's <laughs> Arab
1: here. He's, uh, like, very comfortably heteronormative. Yeah. Loves sports. Like, he is in the prime position. Well, isn't he
0: in the first tier? That's uh, what the first tier is, right? Pretty
1: much. Yeah. And so... When I started my process of unlearning,
2: mm.
1: their language is important, and I try <laughs> to show him that the words he says matter.
0: Mm. Yeah, especially with Maddie, like he'll say something he doesn't realize. Uh, but,
1: but I, every time I try to kind of check his privilege, mm. he's open to it, mm. but not. When I like, I went full head first into my process of unlearning hmm. him, not so much. It's baby steps. And because what happens when you're in that privileged position, why mm. give when it up? You start, but that's it, <laughs> yes, that's, that's exactly what I wouldn't it. give it up. Now you're saying, what's oh, his motive to give it up? Absolutely nothing, right? So, yeah, and so that's what that's it's an interesting it's threat. Thing. It is, uh-huh. so that's it. I want to say that about because so, yeah. he always talks about me. Yeah, so I can talk but it's about true. Him. It's a it threat is, yeah. for him. And he's using, he's changing some things, but I can't expect a full-blown mm. carryover.
0: But mm. how do you deal with it, though? Because you're trying to raise your son. I am. To not fit into. That's true. <laughs> but guess who wins
1: most of the time? You, thank guess God. Guess
2: who it's? Guess who wins? Yeah.
1: It's, it's, I'm with him most of the time. Because so. <laughs> for me, it's really important. So painting his toenail red was no problem. I want my son to be a feminist in yes. terms of for. Everybody. Mm. Equality for everybody. He's already had like a nice little check in the privilege department by being a boy. Mm. So I want him to be an ally and to understand things. I just, I don't want him to be in that position mm. and take it for granted mm. is what I'm saying. And for him to understand just if you want to paint your your, your, your nails, you can paint your nails. It takes nothing from you. It is your body. But at the same time, you have to respect other people's bodies. Like mm. I'm already teaching him consent mm. just in in terms of don't hug anybody unless they want to be hugged. But at the same time, you have the right to say no if somebody is trying to hug you. Yeah, And I think these are just small things that are so important mm. because then he doesn't have to unlearn it later on. Yes, It's already there in the foundation. Mm. And when Mehdi says boys and girls, DJ yells, no gender segregation. So that makes me very happy. (laughs) (laughs) That's
2: nice.
0: (laughs) That's true though. You know,
1: it's, it's, it's something that I knew that I wanted to do right from the beginning. And I've seen other children that are so indoctrinated.
0: Oh, that's the problem. And, Those are the ones I see at the university.
1: You don't even know where to start. And it kind of leads me into another point you brought up when you were saying that these gender binaries actually have effects on public education. Yes. So can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Well, okay. So on a more immediate level, what struck me when I first started teaching at the university in the fall of 2013 was the the percentage of female students who were abiding by a very restrictive interpretation of the religious Islamic dress code. And so these were girls, you know, let's say between 18 to 22 years of age, basically wearing black from head to toe, you know. And, uh, you know, the kind of message that this way of dressing sends out, and I'm not saying this because I have, let's say, a clear idea or a rigid kind of ideology concerning how what people should or shouldn't wear. But, I mean, that kind of visual, let's say, language, it sends out a message, which is that the female body is, by default, is naturally sexualizable, Right. And therefore, it has to be protected from that kind of essential vulnerability by this strong visual kind of veil you know or visual kind of a form of concealment that says to the viewer, "No, don't look at me kind of you know it just creates a kind of protective barrier and it was a bit was a bit disappointing and demoralizing for me to see the extent to which this Uniform kind of culture of dressing had spread you know it seemed to me that like we'd gotten to a point where you know now there's this dominant kind of culture of dressing, this dominant dress code that is getting reproduced right uh, from generation to generation in a way that doesn't leave a room for people as individuals to question it Is this what I want to do? does this reflect? The way I think about myself, the way I perceive myself, the way I want to be in this world, you know? And after I got this in, over this initial kind of, um, let's say, this feeling of being unsettled, right? And I would get to talk with many of my female students, you know, many of whom were veiled. And I I realized that even a large percentage of uh, the students who were wearing the hijab were doing so, not necessarily out of their own conviction, um, but. Some of them are doing it, you know, under pressure from their parents. Some of them are doing it kind of just because it would make their lives easier for them to fit in with other pe- with other uh, girls in their own, you know, age uh, range. And others were doing it, you know, to feel like uh, to, to make themselves more, let's say, appealing in the marriage market, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. So, I mean, for me, like, these are all really not good reasons, you know, to adopt a dress code that ultimately it sends a message that the female body is possesses a sexuality that should be concealed, you know, that, that is, there's something taboo about it that, you know, that shouldn't be um, visually accessible, let's say, you know. So that's one side of like one aspect of the kind of binary gendering that I found deeply troubling. you know male students don't have to they don't have to you know they aren't they aren't by default um subjected to these kinds of expectations you know they're free to more or less to present their bodies in less restrictive ways i mean that's not to say that they aren't they aren't um bound by certain uh, expectations as well. But the visual the visual language that the culture makes available to their bodies isn't as restrictive, you know.
0: And can you imagine the message that, I mean, the thing is, yes, they don't have to uh, feel or that they don't really have a dress code. I like your word. But I think that like, for example, they can wear shorts and we've, you know, when we have very hot weather, I see my students coming in and they've got shorts or even, you know, kind of a sleeveless shirt or tank top or whatever mm-hmm. they call it. But then for us, the girls don't. And if she does wear anything that, mm. then she's seen, and this is like private university, she's seen as like the loose girl. Look, yes, yes. Right?
1: But there's always been a f- policing of the female body because of what it represents. That's right. I mean, like if we go back to duality, if we have mind and body, the... We might
0: take over the world and God forbid. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, but then when you have the Cartesian duality, man and mind are elevated as one and women and body were kind of grouped up into the same thing because of the body is also another like act of defiance in regards to this duality because of what it does, especially the female body and the permeability of the female body. So how women get pregnant and how they lactate and how they menstruate. It's just all of these like leaky fluids within the female body represent everything that the typical patriarchal structure does not want exposed. So the more that you cover up this permeable body, the nice and stable and quiet the system remains. So it's almost taking this denigration of women to a full-blown, just now... We can't see these changes, like these small little acts of defiance to the system.
2: Hmm.
0: Right,
1: it's true.
2: i like, you know, that you mentioned permeability. I think that's really essential for us to understand patriarchal systems. And the way that um, sexual orientation gets kind of often gets Perceived, experienced, kind of mapped out by people in this country, but also in the larger, like Middle East and Mediterranean region, really I feel revolves around this issue of permeability versus impermeability. So, compared to, you know, Western kind of organizations of epistemic, you know, knowledge based organizations of sexuality, the distinction here doesn't seem to be so much homosexual, heterosexual, as opposed to penetrating and penetrable, yeah. right? And so you hear a lot of stories about, you know, coming out of, let's like, say, the, the public school context, you know, where you have all-male schools and all-female all schools, a lot of stories of, you know, sexual assault, rape, you know, coming out in the, bo- in the setting of the boys' schools, and, you know, there it's considered as long as you're the one, you know, doing the act of penetration that, you know, your, your masculinity is still intact, you know? And if you're in the opposite side, if you're getting penetrated, then you lose your masculinity and with it your honor, right? And that kind of model, it persists, I feel, even into adulthood. I mean, at least compared to societies in Europe and the, and the States, we still have like forms of bonding and in the form of social bonding, forms of physical bonding that don't fit neatly with the, the dichotomy between homosexual and heterosexual that we find in the West, you know. But they also involve uh, levels of coercion and violence that are like more subtle, you know, that take us back to the issue of permeability, right? And permeability doesn't have to be just about the body. It can also be about, you know, your emotions, you know, so you're expected here to project your personality in a very extroverted kind of you know, a, you know some often aggressive way. I'm always strong, I don't express my my emotions so much, you know, yeah, so I feel like I mean I feel like there are many ways of understanding what it means to be homosexual, heterosexual, or anything in between, you know, but the way to make sense of the you know the cultural differences. And the definitions of what, what is homosexual, heterosexual, we need to understand how power is distributed in any particular society. And in order to understand that we need to look at the language being used, you know, to describe gender identity and sexual relations and sexual identity and orientation in each society. You know, yeah. So mm.
0: that's true. And and you also talked about uh transsexual right Mm -hmm. and the idea of like you know how they are understood here Mm. and also going back to that idea of because they don't fit in any criteria male female if and how the society mistreats them in a way yes because again they don't fit in they don't since, as we said earlier, if you don't fit a particular category, yeah, then they have to be violated because you are not within. Yes, the norm.
2: Yes, they have to be policed absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and I mean the suffering of transgender people is just heartbreaking in itself. Here, it's ongoing and it's backed by the law. In two thousand and seven, there was an amendment to Article one nine eight of the penal code. Initially, this article just Criminalized behavior that was deemed to be, I mean, public public behaviors that were deemed to be offensive to public morals. I mean, it was a very kind of loosely defined kind of right. um, law. I didn't know really. Two thousand and seven. In two thousand seven, there was an amendment to the law, adding this clause that they're... that you know basically adding to the
0: <laughs>
2: to. Well, there wasn't a list, actually. It was just any any behavior, you know, that offended public morality. But added to that clause uh, in 2007, what they added to that clause was, you know, anyone impersonating the, uh, the other gender, right?
0: So if you're impersonating um, a woman, then you are committing a crime. Yes. And if you're picked by the police, then yes. you are an offender.
2: Yes, and the legal... Penalty allowable for that is up to a year uh, of imprisonment, and or uh, a thousand KDs as a fine
0: for know. every time they catch you.
2: Yes, for every time they catch you. And I've heard many and stories I heard that of, they
0: get beaten.
2: Yes, I've heard many stories about you know individuals who appear to be kind of dressed in a transgender kind of way getting. Apprehended by the police and oh, taken... transgender
0: kind of way. So it's not really a true transgender.
2: I mean, no, we're, so not, like... we're not. We're you not. Know, in the article, I wasn't. I, I didn't address specifically the you know the issue of transsexuals and you know um um gender uh, reassignment surgery. Oh no, because um, we don't
0: no. do it yet. But do you know it is legal in some of the Gulf countries yeah. like Bahrain is. Uh, Oman is. I, if I you didn't can, know that it
2: was re- illegal in Iran. I wasn't aware of it. No, because
0: England, if they have been, if mm. you can prove the idea, they, if you can prove that it's a medical right. situation, then it's validated. Anyways, going back, so they really get picked up. But the yeah. problem is, is that normal people call the police on them. So it's not like yes. the police seeing them. So we go yes. back to that policing.
2: Yes. Somehow yes. in the
0: community... Some people think that they are responsible to report. Yes. Okay.
2: Yes. I mean, I think that goes to show you that, you know, how widely diffused this rigid binary system is, Uh, you know, because it's not being really imposed by the state onto the citizens so much as it is. I see it more as a kind of, let's say, maybe a feedback loop or just a kind of, a flow, a regular flow, you know, from the majority of the society to the politicians and the legislators, you know, and you know incidents, incidents like like this one that that um, the um, Human Rights Watch reporter was covering, right, where uh, transgender transgender people were getting basically exposed to the police by citizens, you know, uh, these cases. Show us that um, deviating from this binary gender script, it just poses a threat to, you know, most people in general. You know, um, and what's interesting is that you know you hear a lot of stories of transgender people who get assaulted and even sexually, physically and sexually assaulted by the police when they get apprehended. You know, and Well, what does that say to you? If you're a representative of the country and you're supposed to be protecting its um, moral fabric and you capture someone who is supposedly, you know, um, corrupting that moral fabric and you're punishing them in a sexual way, so you're initiating sexual contact that by default makes you, uh, you know, part of the uh, deviancy, quote-unquote, of this person that you're policing, you know. So what does that tell you about this dominant ideology? For me, for me, it says that the dominant ideology is uh, is fake. Uh, I mean, at least it's not consistent with um, the honest human experience. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something artificial. It's something imposed. You know, and picking on individuals who very visibly are outside of the norm is an opportunity for people who stay safely within the norm to vent that the, the frustrations they accumulate over time um, from feeling inside inside of themselves that the norm is actually a very heavy kind of expectation to live by. You know, it's very, yeah, it's a very heavy expectation to live by. You know, if you're expected as a man to keep your more vulnerable feelings bottled up all the time, Right. Um, to keep your attraction maybe to to other men kind of repressed all the time, it's heavy. And so when you find someone that is, you know, a visibly outside of the norm that you're abiding by, that's an opportunity for you to become a predator, you know? And I mean, going back to the university, I felt like...
0: Is that what we call homophobic?
2: yeah. I mean, homophobic, but also I mean, We kind all of, know
0: the research about homophobic, that it says that, you
2: know. You could say trans, you know, homophobic or transphobic even. Or transphobic. You know, or, I the, the point I was trying to kind of distill out of these stories is that, um, <laughs> you know, even for people who speak the language of power and, you know, act the acts of power, we shouldn't jump to assume that they are powerful. Yeah, right? that's true. You or know? that they're
0: just acting as...
2: You know, uh, actually, but, but we're, we would be safe in assuming that the language of power, um, the discourse of power, is stronger than they are, you know? And I think every single person, whenever we behave in a conformist way, whenever we give the language of power what it is dictating to us, we are reinforcing the power of that language, giving it more power to keep on dictating to us how we should act and how we should live, mm-hmm. you know? And that's, it's in that sense that, you know, that, um, you know, gendered scripts of behavior, um, models of gender um, become dominant, mm-hmm. you know, to the extent that we do conform to them, we give them the power that actually we possess in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then ironically, it backfires against us, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, in, in my experience in the university, it was just kind of an experience of, uh, I guess you could say, um, a, a bit of a cognitive dissonance, you know? It's like, I'd see these students, okay, I'm sure you know that, practically speaking, this, um, this law that they come up with, I, I believe it was in 1996, you know, of implementing gender segregation in all institutions of, of higher education, public institutions of higher public, education. Yeah it just wasn't feasible on a practical level, you know, it would just involve too much money, you know. Right, Um, that's why they
0: try to impose it on the private sector Mm. and, you know, like it was imposed twice Mm. and at, um, they, uh, it, it's not feasible so the first mm. time they'd, because I wrote a paper on gender segregation when mm. it first happened 2007 or 8 mm. when they tried to impose it to private sector and you know and then of course we had to do it I remember when I first started at the university we have partitioners like they're like small things in the middle I don't know if uh, Haya remembers but they were like in the middle where we had to put the girls on one side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then we're in the same room. Yeah. Because we're a small university and when at that time and, and there's not enough professors so I have to teach for boys and girls, but they have to be yeah. and then after that it's uh after that I don't know what happened, then we came back to norm and then they were trying to impose it again. Yes. Make because I don't know because of the public has yeah. it, so they assumed that we would have it too, or private yeah. sectors. But the thing is, is that they were segregating. It's the same thing as your universities. You're segregated in the classroom, but actually in the main areas, you're not.
2: Thank you, yes. <laughs> so I was trying to, I was, I was aiming to get to that point because it just highlights to you the whole, I mean, the this dysfunctional like, nature yeah, this of the system the, and the hypocritical the nature hypo- of the system. Yeah, exactly. You know? That's where
0: the cognitive dissonance comes yeah. <laughs> in. It's like, you can't be saying to me, and that's exactly what the, you know, the uh, argument was, is like, okay, so you want me to teach for two different, you know, for boys and girls, they're all in my class. But then after that, no, they weren't satisfied. They had to remove or, um and then they have to be in different classes. Well, you know, if you only have two psychology teachers, mm. uh, there's no way, and I'm only supposed to teach certain number of classes, then mm. we wouldn't be able to do it. Right. But then, like I said, our diner, our Starbucks, uh, everything else is like... Uh, you know, mixed.
2: Yeah, you mean you can't force people to interact with only members of their own gender outside. You what know? is outside the, the rationale? States, you
0: know? I don't understand the rationale. I mean, of course, they've you know some people describe it or explain it using religion, but I don't think that that's. You know, that could be possible because mm. I, the idea is that we don't live in a bubble and we don't work. And, now, sometimes you might get lucky if you went to all segregated school and then get segregated jobs. But nowadays, we don't even have segregated jobs.
2: Mm, no, we don't. No. no. I mean, I think the way I try to make sense of it, I mean, I don't think it's rational, but I think it's the kind of there's a twisted rationale behind it. And uh, I mentioned this in my article uh, where I say that, you know, uh, there's this idea that is kind of being circulated by people who, uh, I'm going to put religious in square quotes because it's not, I mean, their thoughts aren't coming out of any spiritual or religious, even religious place, as far as I'm concerned. But there's this idea that, so males and females are biologically, psychologically distinct and it's in the nature of things it's in the nature of things uh, for them to gravitate towards each other because they're distinct and complementary and up to the age of marriage young men young women boys and girls should be protected from interacting freely with each other because that might make room for a kind of you know for extramarital premarital kind of sexual attachments or involvements right. you know so and, we have to protect them. Ironically, but I think what, what that ends up doing in practice, right? First so one of the things it does is that it leads to the establishment of single gender public schools, right? Where you see sexual tension build up to the point of harassment, you know, which is very unhealthy. So you see boys harassing boys in in the schools and then you see boys harassing girls, men harassing women out in the streets in very aggressive ways, very dangerous ways, like harassing them while while they're driving, for example, you know.
0: And the more you say Um, no, the more they follow you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, like, if you want to legislate to that extent, how young girls, boys or, or young men or women interact with each other. You're gonna get some pretty negative consequences. So what you're doing, the more you separate them, the more you encourage each to think of the other mostly in sexual terms, rather than, you know, a fellow human being with an amazing, you know, rational capacity. Right. You know? And the
0: two people could be could be colleagues or could be- Could work together without having, you know, I have a lot of colleagues and I don't think sexually of them. Mm. And that's probably because I was raised all my life in the U.S. where, you know, the genders were treated equal and we all have, you know, everything was normalized. You know, you go to school with other, you know... uh, that is mixed and you work with mixed schools, you go to university with mixed. So it becomes the norm mm. that now I have a lot of colleagues who are males, well, you know, in, in academia, it seems like more males than females. Mm. And, you know, we could sit and have coffee, we can talk. It's never crossed my mind that anyone would be more than that. Mm. So I feel like you're right. I, th- I think whenever we push this segregation and you know, so I did a paper recently also, I, I did one um 2008 and published and then I, and that was only for private universities. And then I did one later on, like two years ago, it was published and it's gender segregation. And we, I, this time I wanted to evaluate, you know, to look at the public, like we did it at. University. Mm-hmm. And then we did it at AUK, mm-hmm. private versus public. Hmm. And we were thinking that the public probably would, you know, that they would want to be segregated and that they would be comfortable with segregated school. And what we come to find out is that it's not true. That even students that were at KU that did our survey for us, we, you know, has expressed the interest of wanting to be in a mixed school yeah, and then there was no rationale for them. And then we were trying to think about where did they get the idea of like trying to be. And a lot of responses were more like, you know, uh, they were raised, you know, even with their family gatherings, they were segregated. Uh, They were raised to, to, you know, the idea that males and females don't mix. Mm -hmm. They were raised the idea that it is wrong to have friends that are of the opposite gender Mm. So a lot of them were raised in that mentality that only made it, you know, okay to be going to segregated school.
2: Right, right. And so like, yeah. from the,
0: can you imagine from the yeah. beginning if I'm told that, no, you're not supposed to go to school with the uh, with the opposite gender, as if like they're trying to say to me that something is wrong here, mm. that the two of you should not be mixed. Right. And it's already uh, building an image in my mind that this is something bad. Yeah. Taboo, we don't do it, you know?
2: Yeah, and there are many issues with that. I mean, on a logical level, you know, I mean, that kind of cultural prohibition is based on the assumption that all males will be sexually attracted to females and vice versa. That's right. Um, And then they can't
0: be trusted. You can't trust males. Right. Because if they're around you, they might violate you. You know, we look the same way we're looking at intimacy and sex. It's like, you know.
2: Right. And then the other thing that develops out of this kind of prohibition is that young men are taught to think of young women as primarily sexual beings and and vice versa kind of and that creates a culture that is ironically oversexed i would say you know yeah 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 um, that's right so the supposedly religious place out of this um out of which uh, this prohibition is coming is in effect Hypersexualizing the whole culture, you know? Um, so there's just a level of logical inconsistency and hypocrisy, I think, that's involved here because I, I, I don't, I'm not even sure if the people putting these laws in place actually believe in what they're doing. I think more, it's a, more a way for them to control society, you know, to see themselves in, you know as having the power to dictate to people how, they, how, how they live. And I also feel like controlling desire is a kind of, it's a profound way of controlling uh, human beings in general, you know, because like people recognize at some level that desire is a powerful motivating factor for just other areas of life, not just sexuality, you know. And so controlling desire is a way of controlling many other things as well, you know. So yeah, I mean, that's how I feel about you know binary gender in kuwait and that's why i i was really motivated to write about it uh in the context of kuwait Perfect. yeah
1: well thank you so much for being on the show <laughs> thank this you. was thank a you. very Bye. informative episode <laughs> okay <laughs> Right. And, and,
0: uh, yeah. <laughs> that's and it really brings a lot of light. Mm-hmm. And and you know, and I think we touched on a lot of things that I people are yeah. thinking.
1: So, if anybody has any questions, please DM us, send us an email, and like. What does Mehdi usually say? <laughs> Leave a review like to get a free T-shirt <laughs> or all of that. Thank you again. This
2: this one um, of the article is "Cracking the Mold: The Case Against Binary Gender," and it's published in the thirty-first issue of the magazine Khalijesk, which is available online on www.khalijesk.com. Khalijesk spelled with Q-U-E at the end. Okay? Perfect. <laughs> That's it. Thank okay. you. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank, you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. You can also find us on Instagram at The Project Kuwait. Thank you, and join us next time.